0: Okay, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala and we seek blessings on the Prophet. I have to applaud all of you that you're here on a Saturday evening to join in Quran learning. So, mashallah, very, very impressed. Okay, so let us jump right into the, the material. And screen. All right. Uh, so nod, let me know you can hear you can see the yeah. Okay, very good. Okay. So first I just want to move a little bit forward in terms of what we we're covering and then do a lot of backtracking today. So we recently looked at the ayahs about uh the battle of bother we looked at the ayahs about the love of these desirable things in this world and that what is being offered with Allah is not only permanent but it is far superior and we had the extensive discussion yesterday of you know uh when we think of the way Allah describes Himself as Basir or Khabir, which one seems more close to us? And so now <laughs> uh, I want to add these next two ayat. So we left it off with Wallahu Basirum bil ibad. And so Allah is all seeing of His servants. And so now I'd like to add some depictions, some descriptions of his servants. So, number one, they make this particular dua. And by particular dua, I don't necessarily mean that they make these exact words, but the sentiment of these words. So, they say, So, our Lord uh, 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 indeed. You know, we believe, or we have believed, so forgive us our sins and protect us from the fire. And we also had the discussion of, okay, which, uh, which works more, which makes more sense, or which is sufficient? Is it that I should be praying only for forgiveness? If that was, if we had to do in either or, do I pray for forgiveness only, or what do I pray for? And the suggestion that I gave is that we should pray for the highest possible, the best possible thing which is the top level of paradise, which inshallah, we would infer, or in our du'as would imply that we are seeking forgiveness as well, to be able to reach the top level of paradise. That we could have the highest aspirations in our hopes in Allah, in, especially in terms of what Allah is capable of, be, of doing for us. Meaning it's easy to say intellectually, or it's easy to conceive intellectually that Allah created the whole universe. And maybe all the universes, if there's more than one, the multiverses. But we should have super high aspirations in terms of our prayers to Allah. But now we have further depictions of the people who are His servants. Ashar. So who are they? These are the people who persevere. These are the people who are truthful. These are the people who are devoutly obedient. These are the people who give to the point of exhaustion. And these are the people who, who are seeking forgiveness. Is often associated with this. Uh, in terms of form, we can perhaps uh, associate with all of these. And so they're especially asking for forgiveness when they're asking for forgiveness at the very beginning of the day. Yeah. And so, if we think back to our our drawings from Al-Fatiha, or or I don't even know if I actually drew them out for you, but this I've been redrawing it to save a little bit of time. And let me know again, you can see the whiteboard. Yeah. So we spoke of four relationships with Allah in Al-Fatiha. One is by his name or names, his ism or asma. Another is by giving him hamd, like, Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen is an expression of his hamd. And then Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim is not only a name, but how he, he, he interacts with us. And then we have Ibadah, you know, uh, worshiping him, giving our most extreme love to him. And then isti'an, seeking, seeking his help. Right. And then we also saw that in the course of the surah, so he's the Malik of the Yom, um, the Dean. And then, and then we were making the, the Dua, the guidance, on the straight path. So I'm not gonna list out all the du'as that we've had in the surah, but we've had a couple, but in this ayah, first let's add what we just saw in uh, the, uh, or in Ali Imran. sorry, let me, We have some new additions to Ibadah. Those of you who have the actual text in front of you, you can follow along. So so the people who who persevere, people who are truthful, The people who are devoutly obedient, people who spend to the point of exhaustion, and the people who are seeking forgiveness. And what's up? This is Ayah number 17. So these are the people who are seeking forgiveness in in the beginning of the day in the pre-dawn. So, so now we have ways in which to worship. So, what is the point here? When we are looking through the lens of fiqh, then ibadah is effectively the five pillars, right? And in, in addition to the five pillars, it would be recitation or or uh, other practices with the Quran, memorization of the Quran. When we're looking through the lens of having a relationship with Allah, now we have all of these things. Sabar is not usually classified in fiqh anywhere. You have trouble finding it. Speaking the truth is classified in fiqh, but here we're speaking of it as an actual relationship with Allah. And so, so now for your own personal assessment, Ask yourself how strong you are in each of these categories. Especially these days in Ramadan, as we're finishing the middle 10, you know, what is the nature of your patience and perseverance? What is the nature of your honesty? And honesty is, includes you know, how, how refined is your honesty versus how, how, you know, how much massaging happens. How devout is your obedience? And then, in terms of being charitable, munfiqeen. So, infaq is to give to the point of exhaustion. And when you're seeking forgiveness, one itself is seeking forgiveness. How often do you do that. Also, we would infer here is what is the nature of your prayers? Yeah, awesome.
1: Um, can you explain the how devout is your obedience question?
0: Mm-hmm. So, so here, uh, think of it in terms of fasting, and and how far do you take the fasting? So we, ha- you know, this is the time of the month on social media, where, or time of the year on social media, where everyone quotes Imam Al Ghazali's, you know, tiers of fasting. So one tier of fasting is basically you do the basic minimum fard, right? Which is you stay away from food, water, from sunup to sundown, right? The basic fard fast, okay. Then the fast above that is you're controlling your anger, you're controlling your tongue. Right. And the fast above that is controlling your thoughts. And so, so, so there's the minimal level of obedience, which would be to complete the fard assignments. And then getting into sunnas and what we would call nafil or mustahab. So increased precision. Make sense? That is if we define it through the lens of fiqh. If we define it through the level of aspiration, so in the same way that we mentioned a moment ago, that when you're making dua to Allah, you should have high aspirations. You should have high ambitions in terms of what you are seeking from Allah. Then the same thing applies here in terms of your obedience that you seek to have increasingly in high obedience to Allah. Make sense? Okay, so again, what are we doing? We started with Al-Fatiha as the lens through which we look at the whole Quran. And Al-Fatiha gave us four then sub lenses through which to look at our relationship with Allah. And now we're beginning to expand upon that. And then when we look at the, what we covered of the structure of the surah so far, again, and this is repetition intentionally, at first we spoke about the fact that Allah is able to do all and he is free to do as he wills, right? And then from there, we spoke about the kafirs who are seeking to have freedom to do as they will, even if it means going against what Allah is, is allowing, and so then from there, we spoke about developing this, this consciousness of Allah as a way to have a relationship with Allah. He's free to do whatever he wills, but whatever he does is majestic, yeah. whether it's forming me or the revelation. And then from there, we spoke about developing du'as as a way to talk to Allah. And so again, I'm not gonna write out all the du'as that we have here, but just briefly noting down the numbers of of the du'as. I think the first one was aya six, yeah. No aya eight. So we have dua in aya eight. And there we're basically asking, Allah, don't let us get misguided. Okay. Not lose guidance. That's the whole thing. And then related to that in nine, we're basically saying, Allah, you're going you're gonna to bring everyone together on the day of judgment. You do not break your promise. And the du'as that we just read Is sixteen. We're seeking forgiveness. Okay. Any questions, thoughts, reflections about this so far? Okay. Everything just seems uh, to make sense. Again, the goal here is not to get too caught up in the details. At the bare minimum, get a sense of the general the generalities of the drawing. At the very least, think of the goal being, how do I enhance my relationship with Allah? So all of this, I can read this the wrong way and just try to get very particular about the categories. No, what we're looking for is, how do I expand my relationship with Allah in ways that I may not have thought of? And so finishing this point off, and then we'll, we'll, we'll get more into the text. When we look at what's been added from the beginning of the surah, about allah so we have adding more to it so again we speak about allah and let's so no god but him okay. sent down kitab torats, Injil, yeah. he is Aziz and he is also Al-Aziz, Al-Qayyum, Al-Khay. those are some of the big ones. Uh, There's a few that I'm leaving out for the for the purpose of of uh, uh, convenience and time, but I'm hoping that you all get the point. And there's also Wahab here. Okay. And part of his greatness is return to him. No god but him. A return. Again, these are all things that I'm assuming for everyone in this in this class, these are all repetition. But what I'd like you to do as we are looking at all this stuff on the board is to try to try to really internalize this notion that uh, my destiny is that I'm going to be facing him. Okay. In the same way I made the point before, I believe maybe even on the first day of class, that when we look at those ayahs that speak about the beginning of the day of judgment, the very, very beginning, where everyone's awakened and you're shocked, uh, um, or you're, you're almost in shock because you're in this giant earthquake and you can't make sense of what's going on. And so think of those eyes as describing you. And so then when we speak of the return to Allah, think of what sentiment you have in terms of your return to Allah. Is it a sentiment of fear, hope, ambivalence? Because as you and I know, that is more real than anything we have in our perception here right now. And so when we speak of the book, the Quran and the Torah and the Injeel, that we speak of them, we think of them as these majestic deliveries as well as ourselves. Okay. Any other questions about the the screen here before we go back to the text? Okay. Okay. Okay, now let's try to, in the same way we've been reflecting upon the different names of a and how they fit and fit with each other. Now we're going to do that with these attributes of the worshipers of Allah. So one aspect of the worship of Allah is perseverance, which I think is probably the easiest for us to to, to think about because this is what we are, are often referring to. But the idea here, I think, is perseverance not only through what hits you in life Perseverance in continuing to do the, the obligations. And so think of perseverance as, or the, the sabir, as a personality type. So if you were to look at through your circle of friends and family members, you don't have to tell us who. Is there someone that you can think of who seems to be the most the one who really seems to persevere through whatever hits them. Okay. And I'm asking each of you to it's like actually think of someone in your circles of friends and family and such, but somebody you know. You're not like, okay, Mother Teresa. You know, someone who you actually who who whom you actually do know personally. Okay. And then likewise, Sadir someone who seems to embody truth or who is there someone in your circle of friends who is very truthful. And then see if you can identify someone because that's your competition. If it is not you. Uh, Yeah. Awesome.
1: Uh, Should those necessarily be different people?
0: No, not necessarily. It could be that you might just wind up with one person for all of them. And that person must be pretty amazing. Or if that's the best you can come up with, then maybe you need more friends. Right. But the point is that, that the point is uh, that one person uh, ideally will have, you know, any of us will ideally aspire to become all these people. And so then the third one. Someone who seems to be seeking excellence in their obedience of Allah. Can you think of someone like that? You need someone in your circle of friends. Who would that person be? And if you objectively are thinking it to yourself, that's fine too. As long as you're objectively. Assessing yourself. Yeah. I and mean, most of my friends are a bunch of liars. So that makes me, no, I mean, the sense that uh, maybe, maybe you're the one who is fourth category here, the most generous. Generous with what? Wealth and time. Your wealth and your soul. And then this one's a little bit harder to define. Because the last one is a little bit more secret or private. But still, the person who seems to be most seeking of forgiveness. And so for each of these five, yeah, awesome. For each of these five, one, two, three, four, five. See if you can I literally identify someone in your world who is that person or has each of the, uh, one of these persons. And then that is your competition. Awesome.
1: When you say seeking of forgiveness, um, are there sort of characteristics that they can embody in their relationships with others that would point to that? Or is it, is it just something internal that we have to try and read?
0: So if we look at the whole attribute, seeking of forgiveness at the beginning of the day or in the middle of the night, then see if you can think of someone who you think that is. Because then our next round is going to be uh, not necessarily in their relationship with Allah, but in the relationship with people. Uh, Dr. Mahan.
2: Yeah, you, this just occurred to me for the first time with the seeking forgiveness in the mornings. Ashar. Um, you know, a kind of person who they haven't even maybe done anything wrong yet, unless they're like seeking forgiveness of what happened before, which obviously is, the, is also the case. But they're going out into the day mm. and they're going out with this attitude that I haven't got it all figured out. I'm probably going to make mistakes. Mm. And rather than you know, uh, I've got it all, all figured out, and they're overconfident, and that reminds me of al-Baqarah, where, you know, they think they're doing good, but they're causing facade, so that's the mm. kind of person that doesn't go out with, you know, forgiveness in the morning. Mm. So, it's so this a, is like
0: the inverse of that person. In,
2: inverse of that, yeah.
0: Oh, very, very nice. Cool. Yeah, uh,
3: Mahmoud. So, I just want to clear like uh phil ashar is it is it like the first part of the day which is considered to be like al-layl I just want to clear this part uh, maybe I misunderstood
0: so i'm going I'm going have to go through the the commentaries in in what they seem to be saying because when I think of ashar, I'm thinking of essentially of Sahar. I'm thinking of the early part of the day I think of morning what do you when you uh, in terms of the Arabic, how do you understand ashar
3: uh it's it's very simple, like suhur, like the, yes, the, exactly. the word. Suhur, you know, it's like the first part of the night, which is between maybe one to two PM, you know, a mm-hmm. M so and then yeah. yeah, so that's that's kind of like what I'm trying to understand.
0: So yeah, uh, let me see what else I can find in the commentaries, but I think your reasoning here is sound. Okay, so so now second round. Uh think of in terms of interpersonal relationships who is the sabir among your circles and essentially what i'm asking is when we go through the first round you know who are these people in their relationship with allah as far as you can gather and then the second round are they the same people for each of the categories not so when you think of the people you interact with, your friends, family, and such, who seems to be the sabir in terms of dealing with family, family matters, or who is a sabir among the friends? Of course, with the younger people, this might this might actually be harder because they their friends are like TikTok superstars, but you know, still they can pretend. So. And then likewise, who is the Sadiq in the family? Now, when we're speaking of interpersonal relations, then we're definitely saying this person is not necessarily Muslim. And then who is the devoutly obedient? We would definitely apply apply this to the relationship with the parents. And, and again, see if you can, who, uh, even if you were to just listed among your siblings assuming you have siblings who would be getting the prize for each of these categories and who's the one who is most seeking of forgiveness meaning they're acknowledging the wrong so uh, again you don't have to tell us whom but for any of you were they the same people in both categories like in terms of united in terms of how we sabr, in terms of with Allah, sabr with people, or Sadiq with Allah, sadhak with people. And no, yes, maybe. There's no doubt. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so that completes that section now, that subsection, where we're effectively laying out foundations of how to grow in spirituality as a believer, including the stuff that I drew on the charts. Now we're adding another level to that. So Allah is witness that there is no God but him, as are the angels and as do those who have knowledge. So we've been making this point on the side about knowledge and the nature of knowledge. And... (laughs) Study ground last part of the night just before dawn. Okay, so so essentially, suhur time recommended time for the Hajj. Yeah, yeah. On. okay. And so so we were speaking about scholars and knowledge. So we spoke about ilm. These are the people who are who are sort of firm in knowledge. And then we spoke of ulul Al-Bab, These people that seem to be conscious and conscientious. And now we have the people of ilm, the people of knowledge. And, and Imam Al Ghazali draws attention to the status that the scholars have, the people of knowledge, in the fact that they're named literally third, right after Allah and then the angels. Yeah. And, and so how do you all interpret that? Does that mean that that is a status of respect we should be giving scholars or what is this saying? How do you read what this is saying about scholars? Meaning, is it that by the virtue of me learning, I'm almost at the point of being angelic? You think?
4: I think the, the value of knowledge itself and um, um, the use of intellect and reason to begin with. I mean like um, Yeah, um, those two things.
0: Okay, but what about those two things?
4: I mean, the reason why um, it is, um, like you said, it is mentioned right after Allah and angels. So why it is given such an importance. uh, Is it to, it is given to the scholars or not? So I think that it's just uh, pointing towards the importance of knowledge itself.
0: So just knowledge I mean, itself is the virtue, okay?
4: Yeah.
0: Later.
3: Um, I don't know, I, I kind of read it as the, it's like a burden that they have to bear um, since, you know, it's it's like the continuation of the, so God bears witness that there's no God but him, and also the angels do and also those who have knowledge, and so it's uh, I guess it speaks to the, the gravitas or the responsibility that scholars have. Mm-hmm. All right.
0: Any other thoughts? Dr. Mohan Mirza, how do you read this? You have quite a bit of interaction with scholars, even if we don't include you among them. But if we do, all the more so, 24-7.
2: Um, I'm thinking about it. It's All right. right. It certainly seems to imply the elevation of scholars, mm-hmm. um, assuming that urul aim refers to you know human beings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Nice. Yeah. Mostan um, sorry. Yeah, I think it's it's really saying that you know knowledge is what leads us to to recognize the the truth of of Allah, the oneness of Allah. That that really makes it clear to us, right? Mm-hmm. And so people who gain knowledge about, uh, about Allah, you know, uh, or in then that path, the, uh, the Allah will sort of, uh, you know, they, 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 they will come to the conclusion that there is no, no God, but, but Allah. Okay. And, yeah.
0: Okay. So then my acquisition of knowledge, the consequence of it should be increasing recognition that there's no God, but Allah. Okay. Awesome. Um,
1: I also, I think it might have something to do with sources of knowledge. Okay so like you said the order was Allah, angels, and then scholars, right?
0: Yeah, or would like, them. so we would interpret yeah. that to be scholars, yeah.
1: Yeah, so like our, our primary source of knowledge is obviously Allah himself, right, mm-hmm. and then that comes by way right. of angels, like if Githavs are brought by angels, and then they're interpreted and understood by
0: scholars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have a chain here, right? And in between at the first level of the chain of the human part we put prophets. And so it follows then that the prophet, peace be upon him is speaking of scholars as inheritors or scholars as are the inheritors of prophets. Yeah. Were you we about to say something else?
1: Um, yeah, I was gonna ask uh, why it didn't why the order didn't go prophets before scholars.
0: Yeah, well, best. Yeah.
4: <laughs> I have a comment. Yes, please. Uh, this is Stephanie Mirza. Yes. Um, could could it be read as um, those with knowledge, people like Al Khidr, mm-hmm. who were not necessarily prophets, but not scholars either that you and I would refer to as scholars? Mm-hmm. They po- possess uh, knowledge
3: um, more mystical. Sure knowledge
0: i mean i think it would be definitely agreed upon that he would be one of the ulul ilm one of the people of knowledge Right? that if we if we remove the idea of a scholar as someone who has certification but as someone and and focus on the fact that someone is a carrier of knowledge whether it is mystical or whether it is legal what have you i think hider would definitely be in that and uh, is, uh, does anyone need more explanation on who Khidr is? Khidr is the person who, in Surah 18, Prophet Musa, peace be upon him, is going to visit. He's not mentioned by name in the Quran, but he's mentioned elsewhere, where he's identified elsewhere. Yeah, I would agree.
2: Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Also, one thing, you know, when we, when we speak of scholars in our mind, we have, you know, certain people who are classified as scholars in our society. Where they're people of sacred knowledge, they know technical details about fiqh and um, they can give fatwas. But um, you know, um, here it says bil qist and that the translation here says, you know, is referring to God is the one who is, you know, upholding justice, but it can also apply to uh, the people of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Yeah, go ahead and keep going.
2: So, you know, just thinking of scholars as people who are engaged in a world in a certain way that they're advancing justice and not simply Mm -hmm. masters of technical details of things, that's also important.
0: This This is literally what the next round of questions was going to be, that when we add this next part, right, the establisher that Allah is upholding justice, then would we also suggest or we also infer that that applies to the angels and the people of knowledge and it sounds like you're saying definitely yes and i would agree yeah that there is a value to these scholars who have technical details but one point we made related to what uh, musad ansari made is that a consequence that should happen of me acquiring islamic knowledge whether or not i'm ulul ilm is that this should increase me in my relationship with allah whether in terms of quantity, whether in terms of quality, whether in terms of focus, what have you, right? Like the chart that we drew, I'm increasing in Hamd of Allah. I'm getting to know Allah more. I'm increasing in obedience to Allah. I'm increasing in, 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 in supplication to Allah. Uh, but what I'm also inferring from this is that the consequence of being a person of knowledge is that there should be a direct relationship between me in efforts to uphold justice. And that is often not what we think of when we think of the community of scholars, right? Often, the scholars are are defending status quo, you know, through through reasoning, and then you have the activists that are focused on on, on upholding justice.
4: I have a question. Yes. So, um, in a few classes ago, you had mentioned that yes, Islamic law upholds the status quo. Yes. And so. How can, hmm, where was there a shift, I guess, in in scholars really uplifting the status quo within our societies instead of following this Quranic injunction?
0: That's a good question. I think it's more, uh, I would look at it as more uh, in terms of not as much as a shift in terms of scholars as much as what has uh, been removed. And so the legal scholars historically seem to almost always, if not always, be focused on preserving a healthy status quo. Meaning the legal scholars were not synonymous with being the people of revolution. Or what we would in our language today call the social activists. But it seems as though for much of their history until colonization, it was the Sufis that were the social activists. And social activists, I'm including social service, I'm um, including the people who are the organizers in using today's language, use, uh, forming unions and guilds and such, that it seems as though Sufis using their own reasoning for why uh, seem to shift from the work on the streets into uh, focus on you know, your individual relationship with the law. And so what is the argument for why? Because we're at this latter point of human civilization where injustice is too big. But because of that absence of the Sufis from that role, that's why we saw in the 20th century, especially the rise of, of the various Muslim groups, Muslim Brotherhood, jamaat islami and so forth and so on and the offshoots filling the void that the Sufis had left. So that's my take. Any thoughts, Dr. Mahan, what do you think?
2: Yeah. You know, um, this is a really tough question because the scholars, I mean, uh, there were so many different um, directions in which Islam went early on. Um, and one of the challenges that the scholars had was, you know, to be pragmatic, and they still have that challenge when you're confronting, you know, very complex kind of, realpolitik uh, situations, uh, p- power, and you're trying to balance, you know, the interests of the people and, um, and keep society from descending into, into a kind of chaos. So there were all these teachings about rebellion that, um, the scholars incorporated, but as that, as that happened, certainly, uh, there was a, um, there was, uh, uh you know, an attempt to preserve stability over instability, because instability was seen as something that would cause greater harm, and um, and that's where that's where we are now. And those debates are still alive today. And they, you know, they came to the fore when we when we saw the Arab Spring. Mm-hmm. So that's just some musings based yeah. on your calling me out. I don't yeah, know. Exactly.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, because these these are questions that that. Uh, a number of us wrestle with almost professionally, if not professionally, but uh, yeah, and we can even argue that uh, the rise of groups like ISIS, aside from the questions of, you know, who's sponsoring them, is also related to what was perceived as a failure of those of the 20th century groups and such. Uh, Asim and then Dr. Malat. Um,
1: so if we, I, I know I kind of touched on this a few days ago, but if we bring the idea of status quo as justice to our shores here um you know we we kind of live in a country built on the back of white supremacy which means that status quo itself is white supremacy right Mm -hmm. and so how, how do we reconcile that definition of like how do we reconcile like justice equals status quo equals white supremacy.
0: Hmm. So, uh, uh, I would definitely not say uh, status quo equals justice. Okay. I would say that the law is focused on preserving stability, i.e., status quo. And when choices are given, the law will prefer things that are more healthy. But the law is not even designed to speak of justice. The closest thing might be in terms of crime and punishment, but by and large, that's not the role of the law. But that's not even the role of the law in our society, even aside from from the systemic aspects of the law, the systemic aspects of our society, including racism and everything. The goal of the law, I would suggest is not justice, maybe except in micro cases, where you're looking for some sort of balance or social order. The goal of the law is order.
1: So, should we, well, I know we should be, but then how do we strive towards justice without reform or without revolution?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, revolution itself is, is so we would think of revolution as reform to the extreme when we're basically saying, you know, the society is irredeemable. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. You know, or, that of all the options available, revolution is 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 most successful or most likely. Okay. So in you know in, in Dr. Mahan mentioned the Arab Spring, you had all these major scholars who were speaking against uh rising up. And so then the activists branded all of them as sellouts. Right. Now whether they were or not, we can argue that through like what, what Dr. Mahan was mentioning, through the lens of legal reasoning, what they saw as being attempted, meaning overthrow of the regime, was asking for more anarchy rather than more stability or more justice. Right? And, and there's the, the famous case of Sheikh Ramadan Bouti in, in um, Syria, who it's believed, who at first was speaking against the, uh, the uprising in Syria but and and so he got a lot of criticism and hate. Uh it is believed in the latter part of his life he 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 shifted, and that could be just you know what we call the you know, people are giving the benefit of the doubt, and then he's killed in a missile strike. So, um so so the big word here, I think, that the Dr. Mahan mentioned is 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 pragmatism. And so there is uh uh you know, in terms of, of any sort of social activism, there's the question of, okay, what can I accomplish? You know, and what do I want to accomplish? And how close can I get to what do I want to accomplish? Right. So in the case of the George Floyd verdict, I, I shouldn't even call the George Floyd verdict, but the Derek Chauvin verdict, right? You know, so the common sentiment has been that, okay, this is, the, this is an accountability, this is not justice.
1: yeah that's i mean i think in in uh activist circles it's not even considered accountability
0: it's just punishment fair fair enough but the point is that that is the 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 challenge of the question of justice you know so you have levels you know you have the person-to-person level of justice Mm -hmm. right you'll have the neighborhood or the societal level of justice and in, in now in our area, you also have the question of systemic justice. Mm-hmm. And what I'm suggesting is that that's not going to come from Islamic law. Islamic law is not designed for that. I think the analogy I gave before is that you're just as likely to get that from Islamic law as you would from a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but uh, But as something that is an obligation for the carriers of knowledge, you know, that I would read from an ayah that it is. Dr. Malahat and then Hazel. Excuse
5: me one second. Okay. as alaikum alaykum. alaykum I I was debating myself that I can ask these questions or not. But then... I said, let's ask it. You have the azan going, and look at the beautiful background. This is is like (laughs) excellent. (laughs)
0: I'm sorry. Go ahead.
5: So, you know, in this ayah, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala mentioning that, you know, that the people of knowledge know that He is the one who holds the justice. He's a maintainer of justice. Okay. So, is that giving us more directions that the just society? is
0: obligation meaning are you asking is it an obligation to
5: establish a just society yes and then a scholar should be the leading force for that like so, in the past that's how right. some of the scholars has been you know understood and then, then later on um, like for the last five six five hundred four hundred centuries that uh, that you know that they're just preserving the Islam, right? The people, they're keeping the people towards the Islam, but mm-hmm. there's no Islamic society or establishment mm-hmm. of Islamutuldeen sort of has mm-hmm. been done. So is this ayah is uh, is pointing towards that so, in a subtle way? You know, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is the maintainer of justice, <laughs> and the uh, angels and the people of knowledge knows about it
0: okay so i'm reading a couple points in your questions and the big one just being about okay you know what is the what is or should be the role of the scholars in particular and then muslims in general and and so uh i do think if we're speaking of legal scholars we find many examples of them taking stances um, against power uh, but I think it's a little bit harder to find examples of scholars leading the path towards revolution. Meaning, so you have the Umayyads who take over from the, the, the Rashidun Khalifas, right? There's no revolution there. You have the Abbasid revolution. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's, there's very much of a presence of scholars in, in that. You have the Fatimids. Uh, And so think of all the big movements in, in our history. Uh, Many of them seem to not be formed by revolution, but even those that were, it does not seem as though scholars were, were part of the process. They may have endorsed, but I don't, I'm having trouble thinking of examples of scholars who are on the front lines, but we do have, Numerous scholars, not limited to law, theology, and everything, who are articulating visions of, of what society should be like. Yeah. And then on top of that, even if we were to say that the scholars did this stuff in the past, but they don't seem to be doing it today, I think this still, again, goes back to the issue of pragmatism. That at the time of the prophet, peace be upon him, right? Which we could, I think, fairly say was a revolution. Like the Sita is literally... A, a, a outlining a revolution. Uh, there wasn't this systemic, this huge system, global system that was dominating everything. Right. This global system that goes back perhaps to the mid20th century or perhaps to, to uh, British colonization. You know, uh, where we've talked about in a previous class, uh, of, of this idea that all the nation states are part of the system. Their banking is part of the system, except for maybe a couple of nations. And so, so the point is that, uh, you know, the difference between the layperson and power uh, and now compared to the year 600, compared to the year 600, it was not as big of a difference in terms of just sheer quantity of power. The difference today versus you know the layperson versus versus the power structure is is immeasurably different. And so the point I'm saying is, uh, if we're saying look the scholars are bad and they're not doing their job, uh, it could be that they're assessing and saying there's no way you're going to defeat this. At best, you can wait for the system to topple on itself. You know?
5: Yep, yeah. I'm I'm not saying that you know they're not doing the job. I'm saying the the term is scholar has yeah. Very loosely, yeah, and then because of those, you know, the the group thing we have in, from the last several hundred of years is actually causing that that you know there is a very cohesive mindset that you know if they are part of me and uh, you know part of my sect of Deobandi, Brailvi or sofar or sufis they are they are the scholars right so, this so that part
0: uh, I would say that's as old as as human society that's not a couple hundred years old you know. I mean, because even think of the people who are refusing to embrace the Prophet, peace be upon him, among the Jews of, of Medina. You know, he's not one of us. Right. Uh, I mean, what we're seeing among among some scholars, you know, getting into their own tribal affiliations is there, but I don't think that's anything new. I think that's just part of the human experience. Make sense? Uh, Hazel, you were raising your hand and then Mahmoud.
4: I'll try to be quick, Bismillah. So w- could one say that, okay, Sharia is law. So then Sunnah is ethics. And so if scholars are the inheritors of the prophets, shouldn't they lean more towards living ethically? So and whether that is cool.
0: So. Uh so this first part because you I'm guessing you have a follow-up uh, question after this if I say yes. So uh I don't know if I can say sunnah is ethics. You know why? Uh because I mean when we speak of sunnah like as the daily prayers, I don't see how that fits with ethics. Now, I guess
4: I guess um let me clarify which sunnahs then I guess like in dealing with people, in adab and akhlaq, in in building, in being in community, I guess that's what I'm focusing on. On sunnah,
2: okay. I
0: would, I would say that's also consistent with Sharia. But let's say hypothetically, I say yes. What would be your follow up?
4: I guess I don't have a follow up. I just I'm I
0: just enough. want to know. So so I so, want to. I
4: guess my I'm trying to wrap my head around. Scholars are inheritors of the prophets yes. and the prophets do things that sometimes go against societal norms
0: yes and, that and I norms, think is that I then, think is a strong point yes
4: then how can they uplift the status quo
0: mm-hmm. so so very commonly you would have uh, uh, the scholar who is focused on you know Islam on the outside which would be sharia. And then you'd have the scholar who's focused on Islam on the inside, which is Tazkiyah or Tariqah, right? And that which is on the outside is focused much more on stability and health through stability, whereas in the inside it's focused all on change. And that is my suggestion why the Sufis historically were the social activists. And so that includes calling out wrongs you know um and so so think of not just one branch of scholarship like in in our understanding of scholarship today it's almost as though it's sharia or nothing right right and and so the doctor of the heart may not be a scholar of sharia although to use dr omar's analogy you know, that the the butter comes from the milk. So the Sharia is the milk, and then the tazkiyah and the purification comes from the butter, meaning you establish yourself in the Sharia, and then you focus on purification. But this, the doctor of the heart doesn't necessarily have to be a scholar of Sharia. The scholar of the heart could still be would still be fulfilling the Sharia, but they're a doctor of the heart. And so the point I'm making is that uh, It's perhaps what is actually the bigger problem is that there's not very much focus on the development of knowledge. And so things just kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and shrinking to the point that what Islam has gotten reduced to in terms of knowledge production is how do you do your your prayers properly? How do you do divorce and marriage properly? How do you finance properly? And that's basically it.
4: Yeah. And it turns and it's very classist.
0: As a consequence, Sure. Uh, by intention, I don't know if that's the case, but as a consequence, yeah. Right.
4: You're giving me a lot to think about. I appreciate you, Muzaffer. Inshallah,
3: we all appreciate each other. mashallah. Mahmoud. So, uh, hearing you and everyone else, I believe we, we put too much on scholars. Like, uh, I believe their job is not to lead changes. I believe their job more to educate the people and people lead the changes because a scholar by himself will end up most likely in a jail or killed like because mm-hmm. we can look at all cases in, his, in history or like close by look and uh, close by look in mm-hmm. Egypt and see how how everyone everything is becoming very controlled and no one can say anything I guess what the government wants yeah so I I, I slightly disagree about how much we put on a scholar versus how much we put on everyone else that work with the scholar himself
0: I think that's a, that's a very strong point, right? You know, that uh, fundamentally the scholar is probably most likely a teacher more than anything else. And, and so a way to think about it is that Salahuddin is a graduate of Ghazali's uh, curriculum. And so, so the point is that perhaps the scholar should be creating these social activists advising them but it's too busy to be one of them but uh, there is still the obligation to to speak the word of truth to the tyrant okay very good um, let us stop right here inshallah and we'll finish the ayah tomorrow la ilaha illa huwa al-aziz al-hakim and so we have more reflections on Allah as aziz and Hakim which seems to be the, one of the threads so far on the surah. Okay, very good. Good discussion, inshallah. And we will continue tomorrow. I'm apologizing because some of you might be noticing that uh, I've been having some problems with the recordings, and I think it's nothing but tech illiteracy. I believe this recording should work. But, you know, it doesn't. You know. All right. Subhanakallahumma, wa bihamdika, nashadu illa ilaha ilaha anta, Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaaghfiruka wa natubhul ilayk. Subhanakallahumma huwa bihamdika nashhadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaaghfiruka wa natubhul ilayk. May Allah tell the word you all insha'Allah and we will continue tomorrow. Wassalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.